0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. For Vladimir Nabokov, the mystery inspired a poem. You easily, regretlessly relinquished the laurels, concealing for all time your monstrous genius beneath a mask, he wrote. Reveal yourself, god of iambic thunder, you hundred-mouthed, unthinkably great bard. Mark Twain agreed. So far as anybody actually knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon never wrote a play in his life, he wrote. All the rest of his vast history, as furnished by the biographers, is built up course upon course of guesses, inferences, theories, conjectures, an Eiffel Tower of artificialities rising sky high. End quote. The question of Shakespeare's authorship, bolstered by the staggering lack of biographical detail about someone who presumably should have left behind more, has attracted lots of cranks over the years, and dismissive defenders too. But clear away the territory at the strawman extremes, and we're left with an area of mystery that more thoughtful people have occupied. Not all defenders have been dismissive, and not all questioners have been cranks. Nabokov and Mark Twain weren't, and neither was Henry James. And neither is our guest today, Elizabeth Winkler, who wrote an article asking whether Shakespeare's plays might have been written by a woman. Our old friend Amelia Lanyer, who we previously discussed as a potential inspiration for the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. Amelia Lanyer was an incredible woman, known to be a poet herself, and one might wonder: well, could it have happened? What happened to Elizabeth Winkler was a kind of blasting blowback, as the academy exploded with outrage and vitriol. Her response was to write a book: Shakespeare was a woman, and other heresies. How doubting the Bard became the biggest taboo in literature, turning her inquiry, and blowback into an inquiry of the blowback, asking why the institutions preserving Shakespeare and his legacy do not wish this question to be asked. What does that tell us about Shakespeare, academia, and ourselves? We'll have Elizabeth Winkler on to discuss all that, plus uh, my last book, today, on The History of Literature. (laughs) Okay, hello, hello, hello. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Glad to be with you today and glad that you're here. We can get right to our main course. We'll serve it up speedily because I think Elizabeth does the job of explaining exactly where she is in all of this, why she wrote the book, and what's in it. At one point, I... I get a little excited and carried away and say, it is Amelia Lanya. Well, or I say, at least, what if it really is? How cool would that be? And she reins me in and says, look, that's not exactly the point. The point is to ask, why is it that people are so adamant that we know something that we might not know for sure? Why do they insist Why do they ask us to believe something that is not necessarily supported by evidence? That's the better question. What does it say about us that we want something to be true, that we don't want to live in a world of reasonable doubts and questions and explorations of alternative ideas? Sometimes that might be good to reject these theories and ideas. We want to live in a world of facts, after all, but sometimes... Our biases might be shading our view of the facts toward more certainty than is warranted. And when that happens, it's worth asking why. In any case, it's a hot topic, and she's right in the middle of it, giving her a good perspective on what happened. What, what's happening. She's in the eye of the hurricane, watching the winds whip and swirl around her calm, fixed point. It's a fun conversation. And then because no main course is complete without a little dessert we will serve up for you a tasty treat. How about our Pulitzer Prize winning friend of the show, Megan Marshall, who will choose the last book she will ever read. So here we go. Onward and upward. We're not even taking a break. We're just plunging right in and it all starts right now. Okay. Joining me now is Elizabeth Winkler, a journalist and book critic with an undergraduate degree from Princeton and a master's in English literature from Stanford. Her essay, Was Shakespeare a Woman?, which ran in The Atlantic, was selected for the best American essays in 2020. She's here today to discuss her book, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. Elizabeth Winkler, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So, how did you first become interested in the Shakespeare authorship question?
1: You know, I studied Shakespeare as an undergraduate, and then again in graduate school, but you really focus on the plays, um, analyzing the works, and I'd sort of heard there was a question around Shakespeare's authorship, but it's not something I thought about a lot. It wasn't a big focus in my seminars or lectures. But then years later, I wanted to understand why so many great writers and thinkers uh, mm. had this question about the authorship. You know, so many people have suspected that it was a pseudonym for a concealed author. Henry James wrote, I am sort of haunted by the conviction that the divine William is the biggest, and most successful fraud ever practiced on a patient world. And Walt Whitman talked about the mythos he saw in Shakespeare and his mm. belief that there was another mind behind the plays. Um, Mark Twain has this really funny essay where he makes fun of the Shakespeare biographers saying that they've sort of built up the biography of Shakespeare out of, for instance, theories, conjectures, and an Eiffel Tower of artificialities rising sky high. Right. Vladimir Nabokov um, wrote a poem about it saying you sort of, you concealed your monstrous genius beneath the mask. So all these minds have grappled with the, um, with the question. But in English literature departments, it's effectively forbidden. That to me is just such a kind of a bizarre phenomenon, and I wanted to understand uh, you know, sort of what was going on there. Why do all these people have a question, but it's not something you can really talk about within the university system? And then also, why do people get so emotional about it? Because when you bring up the question, you often get these really furious responses.
0: Mm. Okay, well, you've put a lot on the table, so let's walk through it kind of in turn, but I guess, one of the things is i mean shakespeare's biography has been described as a black hole and i think that's mm-hmm. what sort of drew the attention of people like mark twain and you know he when he was describing that about the biographers it reminded me of of all the biographies i've read of shakespeare where you realize pretty early on that they're they're using the The tense of, well, he would have done this, you know, that we we know from other we know from education at the time that he probably attended a school that had this and and so on.
1: They have no idea. It's amazing. If you just (laughs) if you take a marker and just circle every time it says must have, could have, probably, surely, no doubt. They're full of speculation and imagination. Right. Right. And, you know, scholars are aware of that. Stephen Greenblatt's best-selling. Shakespeare biography will in the world how Shakespeare became Shakespeare was uh, you know criticized for being biographical fiction that's the term yeah. that was used to describe it right and in in 2016 there was this great conference convened at the Folger Shakespeare Library here in DC called Shakespeare and the Problem of Biography and mm. there was all these scholars sort of wringing their hands over the difficulty of reconstructing the biography and one of the right one of the scholars sort of admitted the the biggest mystery of all, the biggest lacuna is the mystery of how Shakespeare ever became a writer in the first place. But what was so funny, I think, about that conference is that they didn't want to entertain the question. The problem of biography might be that they have the wrong biography.
0: <laughs> mm. Someone who's new to this might say, well, Shakespeare lived 400 years ago. The, the records mm-hmm. were likely uh, more paltry. Obviously, we don't have recordings and, and photographs and things like that. And But you know, there's a difference between what we can expect and, and what we have. And what sure. evidentiary absence intrigues you the most?
1: Uh, it's so many different things. That's kind of what makes the question so fascinating. So on the one hand, you have the, the problem of knowledge. We assume that Shakespeare went to his local grammar school. There's no record to affirm that. So it's just sort of an assumption. But the plays are sort of brimming with this Incredible, I mean, just the cutting knowledge of the Renaissance humanism, you know, new learning, knowledge of philosophy and Greek drama, French, Italian, the law, theology. They're sort of dazzling in their erudition. Mm -hmm. And theres we have no idea how the author acquired, how, how Shakespeare acquired all that knowledge. One Shakespeare scholar writing about the play, early play, Loves Labor's Lost, which is really dazzling in its wordplay and its knowledge of sort of the politics of the French court, he said, um, to believe that a, a boy with no more than a grammar school education wrote this work is, um, requires you either to believe in miracles or to disbelieve in the man from Stratford. Mm. So that's, that is just one problem. Then there's the issue of, you know, the actual records in his will um, he doesn't mention any plays, poems, books, manuscripts. he It's a very um, detailed will, sort of meticulously leaving his assets to various people, his sword, his second best bed, his estate. You know, he died a fairly wealthy man, but there's nothing in the will that suggests traces of a literary life. Right. It's a strange thing. When right. he dies, there's no eulogy at his death. When, when great poets died, it was an age of great eulogies. There were often poems or tributes written, recognizing them, and a sort of total silence at his death. His daughters appear to have been illiterate. So that's another bizarre thing. How could a writer, any writer, let alone the greatest writer in the English language, be indifferent to the literacy of his children? Other people have pointed out that there's no sort of connection between his life and the plays and poems. The historian uh, Blair Warden has said, you know, the relationship between an artist's biography and his writing is, is always a difficult subject, but there can be no other important writer since the invention of Putin for whom we're unable to demonstrate any relationships at all, you know, between the life and the works.
0: You mean between like Stratford or, or the marriages that we know about? We don't see those in the plays.
1: There are a lot of documents pertaining to his life. He was a businessman. You know, he was a shareholder in the theater company. He seems to have been an actor. Um, he was engaged in various legal disputes. You know, there's there's a mass of records about his life, but he doesn't leave the kinds of records behind that you would expect for a writer. So there's no other writers of the period left letters, for instance, mm. in which they refer to their writing or their verses, or there's records showing that they were paid for writing. Or when they die, there's some mention, you know, our great poet, Edmund Spencer, for instance, died last week and was buried at Westminster. You know, there's, You can, of course, documents um, get lost and we don't have everything from 400 years ago. But for other writers of the period, you can put together evidence of a literary life, you know, evidence that testifies to a life dedicated to writing. And you can't do that for Shakespeare. So it's, yeah, that's why it stands out. Essentially, that's why there's this question.
0: Okay, so I'm going to try to play devil's advocate. And there's one, uh, because I want to hear your response to, I'll call them the Stratfordians, Uh, but Mm -hmm. the one that in the very first thing that you said, I hear basically two arguments made by the Stratfordians. Against people who question Shakespeare's authorship, and one of them is they say, these are all crackpots and crazies, and they have these right. these wild ways of reading the plays, and they, they all have this mm-hmm. extra grind and all of that. I think you've you've kind of already addressed that by saying, "Well, Henry James wasn't a crackpot, you know yeah. <laughs> neither is Elizabeth Winkler. but the one that i uh, I think they say the most is this comes out of snobbery. You know, this is saying mm-hmm. that a, a Glover's son could never have the kind of education. And, and I think it gets tangled up with people who said it must have been, you know, Sir Francis Bacon. It must have been some kind of nobleman who would have had a, a finer education or who would have had access to courts and and, and so on. Uh, yeah. Do you think that people who have questioned Shakespeare's authorship are coming at it from this position of snobbery? Or how would you otherwise address that?
1: I don't think they are. I mean, you know, Walt yeah. Whitman, the poet of democracy, <laughs> mm-hmm. doubted the authorship. So it's mm-hmm. really not about snobbery. It's about the evidence. And if you look at other playwrights of the period, for instance, Christopher Marlowe, born the same year as Shakespeare, the son of a, a cobbler, so similar background. But for him, we know he won a scholarship to the King's School, prestigious school, and then another scholarship to Cambridge. So he, you can follow the trace of his development, of his genius, if you will, Ben Johnson was educated at Westminster School and had a, a very eminent historian, William Camden, as, his, as, a, as a teacher, and he recognized him as his mentor. So, you know, you, you can find that for other writers of the period, and you can sort of explain how they came to write these works. So the snobbery accusation, it's a kind of ad hominem attack that gets thrown mm-hmm. out. Um, and I think it's really a way to smear people who question the authorship. You know, so it's it's an underhanded way of sort of sidestepping the issue and preserving the dogma so that people become, you know, they become afraid of talking about the subject because no one wants to be accused of being a snob. Mm, But the recourse, I think, to the ad hominem attack is kind of telling because it's, you know, it's attacking the person instead of actually addressing the subject and the evidence.
0: Right. And it's sort of, I mean, a lot of times conspiracy theories will have this and you could see that it has this negative agenda behind it, and it could actually harm people. Of course. But in the case of Shakespeare, I mean, who is it really going to harm? Even if, <laughs> even if it does make it seem like, I guess it would harm other sons of Glovers or or people who have worked their way up. But as you say, we have an example of Christopher Marlowe, and nobody is objecting to the idea that he wrote the plays that he wrote. Exactly. Hmm. So what did you set forth in your Atlantic article? What argument were you making and what were you drawing upon in order to make that argument?
1: That article was reporting on a newly proposed candidate named Amelia Bassano-Lanier. And at the time, I was interested in the female candidates that have been put forward because a lot of attention has been paid on the male candidates, Francis Bacon and the Earl of Oxford, Christopher Marlowe. And I was interested in the feminine aspect of the plays because there's a long history of feeling that there's something sort of weirdly female about Mm. Shakespeare.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: In the 17th century, the philosopher Margaret Cavendish remarked that, you know, Shakespeare must have metamorphosed from a man into a woman, you know, to write these female characters. Um, And then you get it again with John Ruskin, the Victorian critic says Shakespeare has uh, no heroes, only heroines. Uh, Orson Welles wrote that there was something clearly tremendously feminine about Shakespeare. Virginia Woolf remarks on the sort of androgynous man-womanly quality um, of the works. But then in the later 20th century, with the heyday of feminist literary criticism, a lot of feminist Shakespeare scholars are also paying attention to this. The scholar, Juliet Dusenberry, says Shakespeare's drama clearly deserves the name feminist, for in his plays, the struggle is for women to be human in a world that declares them only female. but where did this come from? You know, mm-hmm. how, how did a 16th century male playwright come to write feminist drama? Another scholar, Ann Barton, says there's two Shakespeare has an uncanny understanding of women that's missing in the work of his contemporary playwrights. So, you know, what's where is this uncanny understanding coming from? The, the first female candidate was actually Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke. She was a sort of Uh, poet and patron of poets, and she was first proposed in 1931 as a possible contributor to the works in a kind of group authorship theory. Mm. And then Amelia Bassano, who was the daughter of uh, Italian immigrants to England, led a really interesting life, later in life published a volume of kind of radical feminist poetry. She was proposed in the early 21st century as another figure sort of tied perhaps to the plays and then Actually, after my article came out, there was a book published by Rutledge Studies in Shakespeare arguing for her as a a possible co-author of the plays. So Mm. the article was really just exploring um, this question of the female aspect of the works. And, you know, is it possible that a woman was concealing herself beneath a male pseudonym in the way the the female characters in Shakespeare's plays are so often disguising themselves Mm. in male garb?
0: Well, that theory has a couple of things going for it, just from a, how should I put it, the, the path of least resistance. I mean, one of them is, it would explain why this happened. I mean, you could, like, it, one of the questions right. about if Shakespeare wasn't the author is, well, why, who needed to be disguised like that? Who who needed the cloak of, you know, William Shakespeare as being the author, and you could see where it would uh, have been you know, convenient or necessary for a woman who was trying to get her plays on the stage and get them published to have it under the imprint of a man or the, the name of a man just from a, a business perspective, or I don't know if there were other restrictions at the time.
3: There, there was a, a
1: pretty significant stigma in the period mm-hmm. against women publishing works. There's actually a, a funny poem in which a writer says about a woman that she powders a sonnet as she does her hair and prostitutes them both to public air. So it's getting at the sense in which a woman sort of selling her words in the marketplace is a kind of prostitution. You know, it's it's seen as immodest for a woman to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the, the Shakespeare scholar Phyllis Rackin has said that she is certain that women were contributing to the plays in Shakespeare's day, but their names might be impossible to retrieve because, you know, of numerous reasons ranging from social propriety to commercial marketability that existed for concealing that a woman had a, a hand in writing a play. Mm. The ideological constraints in which they operate are more likely to have prevented acknowledgement of a woman's authorship than to actually have prevented them from writing plays.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And it would. Kind of makes sense then why Shakespeare wouldn't mention any of this in his will that it would just be his job was done, <laughs> and uh, he didn't feel any particular ownership over these things that he was maybe just uh, putting his name on for that reason or or yeah. you know uh, the other thing that it it does seem like is if if it's so surprising that Shakespeare was able to see things from the point of view of a woman, it seems like it would be a lot easier for a woman to see things from the point of view of a woman and a man, since she would have the, the benefit of all of these playwrights out there and all these poets who were men. It seems easier for her to be able to write from both points of view than it would be for a man who would not really have as much to read by any woman.
1: I think that's true. Some people have sort of pushed back and say, well, then you could say, how does, how could a woman have written the men so well?
0: <laughs> right, and, right. But that's what I mean. She would have all of these examples, like she's every time she goes to see a play, it's by a man. She'd get the man's point of view uh, all the time.
1: Yeah, and I should clarify, you know, this is just a theory that's out there. I'm not arguing um, that this is necessarily the case. My mm. book is sort of Shakespeare's Woman and Other Heresies. Mm. It, it explores mm-hmm. the various theories around who the author might have been. I wanted to let the reader really sort of grapple with the problems and the, the gaps, the inconsistencies in this whole history without telling them what to think and sort of let them follow these different theories and you know see what they make of it all.
0: Right, okay, so let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with the response to that article and what it has told you about the nature of things in the Academy and elsewhere. Sounds good. Okay, we're back. So Elizabeth, what happened next? You published the article. It advances some theories, and what happened? What kind of oh, response all, did you receive? All
2: hell broke loose.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was, you know, I was, I was a little naive. I'll say in retrospect, I, I sort, I knew the authorship question was contentious, but I sort of thought, you know, I can lay out the arguments and the evidence, and yeah, you know, we can have an interesting discussion, but the article went viral quite quickly and it was a polarizing response. People loved it or they hated it. And I was among those who hated it. I was attacked as sort of, you know, conspiracy theorist compared to Holocaust denier, which, cause Mm. I was denying denying Mm. Shakespeare, uh, you know, or other sort of anti-vaxxer, you know, climate change denier, these really kind of ludicrous comparisons that are, you know, they're not remotely equivalent, but this was the stuff that was being thrown out there and it was really kind of shocking at first. I had never been attacked like that as a writer. And to experience that, it's it's a bit mortifying. But when the initial shock had subsided, I realized, you know, actually, these responses have given me something really interesting. Because why are they so emotional? And why is a literary historical question about the authorship of 400-year-old plays being framed as a moral problem
2: mm. on
1: par with these other, you know, obviously ethical issues, Holocaust denial, climate change denial, whatever. And that was really fascinating to me. So I stepped back from it for a while because it was so toxic. I, I wrote about other things, but there was a lot of interest in me expanding it into a book. And I realized I didn't want to just write a book arguing that Shakespeare was this person or that person because mm-hmm. there are a lot of those books out there and you can go read those theories. What I wanted to do was step back and examine the taboo, how doubting Shakespeare became, as I write in my subtitle, the biggest taboo in literature, and and why this controversy is so emotional and so difficult to talk about. So, the book is really a portrait of a very fractious, muddled literary feud by a journalist surveying the the history of the debate, and I think it's a fascinating history.
0: Right, because. The, the thing that strikes me about it is the people who are invested in this, they are aware that there is this evidentiary gap. I mean, this is not like arguing that the earth is flat and you have to ignore right. all of this evidence or something. This right. is like like they know that they <laughs> they know that the biography is has got some unusual gaps. And and it's hard to say one way or the other. And and there maybe are some things that that seem uh, the gaps are not just due to the passage of time, but seem particularly uh, striking that there isn't more there. So why do you think there is so much agita over this question? And why do the academics circle the wagons about this to such a, a fierce degree?
1: Because Shakespeare is the god of English literature, Mm. and you don't question, you know, it's it's deeply religious and moral, I realized. So to understand Shakespeare scholars, I think you have to go back and understand the origin of English departments. They developed in the mid-19th century during the height of the Victorian deification of Shakespeare. And this was an era of expansive imperialism when Shakespeare was held up as a kind of national icon of Britain, even a kind of god. Uh, pilgrims were flocking to Stratford upon Avon to pay homage to the poet. They would throw themselves down at the birthplace, the purported site of his nativity, which had become a kind of English Bethlehem, a site of worship. They would cut pieces from the local mulberry tree outside the house, like pieces of you know, like relics of the true cross. They sang odes to Shakespeare. There was this this extreme veneration. George Bernard Shaw called it bardolatry. Mm. And ideas about Shakespeare were enshrined in English departments during this period of, of heightened religious veneration, and they keep getting passed down from one generation of scholars to the next. So the taboo around questioning Shakespeare, it is like, it is like a religious taboo. It's treated as heresy. Mm-hmm. And then I think there are also psychological dynamics at play, you know, groupthink, to which academia is not immune, confirmation bias. The need to win the approval of your department chairs, colleagues, journal editors, peer reviewers—you don't win that approval if you go around asking this question. You don't get the grants. It's, It's—it just, you know, it doesn't happen. And and then there's just the plain old difficulty of changing one's mind about a belief that you've held for a long time and that is fundamental to your sense of identity. These people are Shakespeare scholars. They are so deeply invested in their beliefs about this writer that they've dedicated their careers to it's really really hard to change your beliefs about any subject of course you know but with shakespeare they've written books they've their reputations are staked on certain ideas they've put out into the world about this author and it's really tricky to change tracks then
2: mm.
0: It does seem like you're onto something there, because we have a, a poet. I mean, some would say the second greatest after Shakespeare is Homer, and we recognize that we don't really know who Homer was, and he may have been a man or a woman or a, a committee. He could have been a, you know, a, a set of oral traditions that kind of coalesced and were written down, but but maybe not by one person even, and. Everyone is sort of fine with that we're fine with the doubt we don't need to to create turn him into a, a venerated single figure, although he's represented that way but nobody nobody complains if you say, "Oh yeah," and of course Homer might have been you know a bunch of people. It does seem limited to this Shakespeare where people are almost angry about the question
1: that's true, but interestingly in the in the nineteenth century when doubts about Homer were sort of first coming out and classical scholars were questioning whether it was really the singular author figure that people had thought it actually was upsetting to people and they reacted in the same way,
2: mm. um, mm-hmm. thinking
1: it was heretical. So that reaction did happen. Now we don't care so much. Um, I think it also has to do with Britain's national investment in Shakespeare you know, there's no national tie to Homer. Um, in the same way, because he's so distant. Of mm-hmm. course, the Greeks, you know, care about him, but it's, it's not the same thing. With Shakespeare, there was a there was a poll done a few years ago that found Shakespeare is the uh, symbol of which Britons are most proud, ahead of the monarchy, the armed forces, the Beatles, and the Union Jack. It's Shakespeare. So the centuries of national investment in him as a as a as an icon, um, and the ways in which he's intertwined with British national identity. I mean, it's really hard to take that apart. During the period of, you know, expansive imperialism, I was talking about Shakespeare was really held up as proof of Britain's cultural superiority and of its right to rule. You know, you should be so lucky to be governed by us. We have Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And the mythologies of sort of the nation and its poet, the empire, and its hero god became so intertwined that you can't separate them. There was a philosopher, Thomas Carlyle, who said, Shakespeare would be the rallying sign to unite all English-speaking peoples a thousand years hence. That's what he wrote in the 1840s. That Shakespeare would be the universal church of the future and of all times. I mean, it's really heightened language, right. and I don't think, I don't think Britain has been able. You know, even with the decline of empire, I don't think Britain's been able to
2: let go of that. Mm.
0: And there's there's this feeling that that. Uh, you know the the famous line about him having never blotted a line, and I understand there's there's actually been a lot of questioning of that statement now, but I think for for a long time that it it stood for uh here's a genius who was almost divinely inspired. His mind worked with his hand in perfect sync, and he could basically bin out literature in a way that would we haven't seen his likes before or since. It would, you'd have to look to a Mozart or you'd have to look to some other realm in order to see someone who was blessed in that kind of way.
1: Oh, completely. Although with Mozart, people often cite the example of Mozart as another divine genius. But Mozart's father was a composer and you know, a musician who educated him from the age of four. So it's easy to understand the origins of Mozart's genius in that regard. Genius has to be nurtured. It's, of course, there's raw talent, but it has to be nurtured by education. And you can, with Mozart, you can see the development of his genius in a way that you can't with Shakespeare. So they do cite the sense of something supernatural. Shakespeare scholar Samuel Schoenbaum asked to explain you know, the mystery, said Shakespeare was superhuman. But you know that's an explanation that's really no explanation at all. Or they cite, as you said, the wonder of his genius which allowed him, as one scholar puts, to grasp in lightning speed what what could only be attained after dull years of work by ordinary minds. So there's this sense of divinity and him springing sort of inexplicably out of nowhere something godlike about Shakespeare. Mm. Because they can't really explain it otherwise.
0: So I'm also <laughs> because, I, because I, I can't resist uh, bringing in a an analogy to the Beatles, uh, I, I'm reminded of a sort of uh, line that I heard about taking LSD, where where Paul used to say, you know, he was always afraid to take LSD because he thought, what if I go somewhere and I don't come back? What if it affects me permanently? I don't really like the idea that my mind could be permanently altered. And he said for John, that was something that excited him. That idea was something that made him kind of want to try it more because he thought, wow, that sounds like. Sounds like something that could be pretty cool. I kind of feel like uh, I'm reminded of this in, in thinking about, well, what's the harm in opening yourself to the idea that because we don't know for sure who wrote the plays, we could entertain a lot of ideas? And what's there to be afraid of? It just seems like... I don't see why people can't look at the absence of evidence and say, well, could we learn something by maybe exploring some other possibilities? So maybe we should make the case for what we get from doing that. What are the benefits in thinking that Shakespeare might not be the person who, you know, we see on the, on the cover in the famous portrait and so on, but that the Shakespeare plays were written by somebody else or a multiplicity of people?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, I don't think there is any harm in speculating about this. Historians recognize that the past is subject to differing interpretations and debates about the past are actually a fundamental feature of historical inquiry. So it's a weird thing that people react as though it is harmful. One scholar, um, Sir Stanley Wells, who's sort of Britain's knighted Shakespeare authority, said two years ago, it is immoral to question history and, and take credit away from William of Stratford. Uh, and I just love that quote because immoral to question history when, <laughs> when inquiry is the very basis of the historical <laughs> discipline. You know, it's just, it's hilarious. But so what are the benefits? I think there's so much we stand to learn. We can gain a deeper understanding of the plays and poems because there's mm. a lot we don't quite get about them. You know, in the sonnet, the author seems to be suggesting that he intends his identity to disappear. He says, my name be buried where my body is. I once gone to all the world must die. Every word doth almost tell my name. There's so much of the sonnets, they're, they're incredibly mysterious poems, and scholars have struggled to understand them. But the plays, too, there are references that we don't get. There's, there's things going on that I think the traditional biography sort of distorts scholarship on the plays because they're trying to limit what's in them to what could maybe have been acquired by this man who never left England and had a limited education. And so they actually end up kind of diminishing Shakespeare.
2: Mm. Like
1: they, one funny thing that happens is that they, they rejoice to find him making errors, for instance, about Italy. So Mm. early scholars said, look, this, this guy has been to Italy. He knows Italian customs. He knows specific Italian locations. He's really familiar with uh, colloquial Italian language and culture and geography. But then when they started you know, doing more research and they couldn't find any evidence that Shakespeare had ever left England. They had to start walking that back. And so they claimed that actually his knowledge of Italy was inaccurate and he's making all these silly errors, but it's not true. And other and Italian scholars have come along and said, no, no, no. What are you talking about? This author is traveled. You know, so it's, it's this funny thing that happens where they're trying to make, force the works into like a slipper, basically that doesn't fit. The glass slipper doesn't fit and they keep trying to force it in mm. and, it, and it becomes awkward and it, it distorts the scholarship. You know, another issue is the law. Lawyers have pointed out that this is an author who seems to think in legal phrases and has an incredible mastery of Elizabethan law. Shakespeare of Stratford had no record of any legal training. So anyway, there's, a, there's about a dozen examples like that. And you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. But the other thing I think is that if you open the question up, it revitalizes interest in the Renaissance, in literature, in Shakespeare. There have been universities that allow, a few universities have allowed courses on this subject. The University of London in 2018 started offering a course called Introduction to Who Wrote Shakespeare, and people loved it. And I spoke with a professor of theater in Canada at York University. You know, he proposed a seminar on the authorship question, and his colleagues in English scoffed and said, oh, no one's going to sign up for that. How absurd. And then there was a waiting list every year because students loved it. And it's actually a really interdisciplinary subject because, yes, you're looking at the plays, but it also requires so much knowledge of history and psychology comes into it and these different, you know, knowledge areas that the author is familiar with. So I think it's fascinating. And and frankly, having a taboo on any area of discipline in the academy is just so Mm anti-intellectual, right? It's just it's a bizarre, bizarre phenomenon. That's what I found interesting as a journalist. How has this taboo persisted? In the modern university system, it's really a strange thing, and I think it's it runs counter to all of our notions of intellectual freedom and academic inquiry. So
0: there is a potential ugliness here, which is a kind of we shall not be questioned, you know, yes. and and the kind of uh, we are the authorities, we are the the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. And you, with your pesky questions, are, I guess, behaving immorally.
2: Yes.
1: No, absolutely. I opened the book with the question, who has the authority to determine the truth about the past? And the subject is so much about authority um, and who gets to decide. And Shakespeare scholars are sort of the high priest of this discipline, even though it kind of should be a subject for history departments rather than English literature departments. And that's another issue that it kind of sort of falls between those disciplinary cracks a bit. When you talk to historians about the subject, and I interviewed a few for the book, they are far more skeptical about the authorship, and they're far more interested in entertaining the question and in researching it than most Shakespeare scholars are. Although when I spoke with some Shakespeare scholars, they would admit to some degree of doubt about the authorship. Some of them, others, you know, others are totally closed off.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. It does seem like the analogy to him as a religious figure seems so appropriate, because it does almost seem like people are reacting as if you're questioning their God. And to me, it just seems... I mean for one thing if Shakespeare didn't write the plays he still would have had a really interesting life. I mean how did this happen? This sure. must have, it must have been amazing to be him anyway and then it would it opens up this idea of of who was putting together these plays and the plays become something more like stonehenge or the pyramids or something where they they just seem so grand and the the mystery almost adds to it rather than detracts from it.
1: Oh yeah, and some people have suggested that that was maybe the author's intention.
0: You know, mm. that kind of
1: self-erasure—that it does, it does add to the mystery and the beauty and the sense of something kind of otherworldly, perhaps, mm. going on. I don't, you know,
2: right. um, It's part right. of the
1: fun, and and actually, the mystery is part of what's made Shakespeare the figure he is in our culture. Because I think we love the mystery. Shakespeare satisfies yeah. our need for the sacred, for something that surpasses our ability to understand, so to some extent. The attempt to solve the question or even to pursue theories demystifies the author, right? Because it grounds the works in maybe a specific person's life experiences and reading and education and, and brings this, I mean, the work, of course, is still brilliant, but it somehow connects it to a human rather than being up in the sky in this this godly supernatural figure. So I think there's a resistance maybe to demystifying the author.
0: Mm. Yeah. If Shakespeare was on Twitter, he'd be just another poet.
3: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I
1: mean, actually, I think Shakespeare, whoever Shakespeare was, is cackling about this whole thing from the sidelines, you know, because it's very funny. It's kind of a comedy. You know, it's, it's, it's an absurd feud uh, between the scholars and the skeptics. And that's what I've tried to capture in the book a bit, just, just how hilarious this whole thing is. And there's something actually very Shakespearean about the authorship question because, mm. of course, the plays, the plays are yeah. full of instances of mistaken identity and false appearances and things that, you know, re- reputations that are deceptive, things that aren't what they seem. I think of Viola, who's disguised in Twelfth Night as a boy. She You know, she says, I am not what I am. And her, her trickery sort of allows her to transgress the strictures of femininity. But then I am not what I am is also Iago's tagline marking him out sort of as the play's devil. You know, he doesn't really really serve Othello but only pretends to. So again and again the plays dramatize the riddle of identity. Perdita in The Shepherd Girl in the Winter Sale is actually the lost daughter of a king. Christopher Sly, the drunken peddler in the taming of the shrew, is fooled by a prank into thinking he is a lord. So, you know, high is low, low is high. The apparent viola is not the real viola. The apparent Iago is not the real Iago. Is is the apparent author the real author? You get the sense that the plays themselves are somehow playing with the whole issue, which Mm. is delightful.
0: Right. So I don't want people to think that we've exhausted this topic because we've covered so much ground. I think readers who are turning to your book can expect to find a lot more. And it's just some of the interviews that you do and some of the, the, the details that you give are so invigorating and so it, it's exciting. It reads almost like a, like a mystery or something.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, look, it is a mystery. It's a detective story. Yeah. You know, who, it, it is a great, great detective story. And I've tried to write it as one because there's a sense of suspense that runs through the whole thing, trying to figure out what, what was going on behind these works. It is right. also a kind of comedy, a spat between these scholars and, and heretics, some of the outbursts, are are quite funny in the tense confrontations I have with some scholars. And then it's also a meditation on these issues of history and certainty, authority that we've talked about, because the authorship question is really a kind of metaphor for the problem of history, of how we know what we think we know about the past. I see it as standing sort of for this larger issue of the difficulty of reaching objective history or certain
0: knowledge. Okay. Well, the author is Elizabeth Winkler. The book is Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Elizabeth Winkler, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Finally, today we hear from author Megan Marshall, who has been here several times to discuss the subjects of her research, the Peabody Sisters, Margaret Fuller, Elizabeth Bishop, and an introduction she wrote for her late friend's book on Emerson Thoreau and William James and the Grief They Experienced, Three Roads Back, that book was called. After our first conversation, I asked Megan to select a book to read as her last Okay, we're here with Megan Marshall, author of acclaimed biographies of Elizabeth Bishop, Margaret Fuller, and the Peabody Sisters, among other works. Megan, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: Well, that's quite a profound question, and I find myself thinking about the circumstances of this reading. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think what I would like to do, I'm not sure I would myself be able to read a whole lot. I would love to have one or both of my daughters um, attend my my deathbed and, and read aloud to me. And I think of two books that were so formative helping me to become a writer and the person I am, children's books that I read when I was young, um, A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, where a girl is triumphing over difficult odds, and books are the way she positions herself in the world. Reading and the life of the mind is important to her, and magic comes and transports her out of her plight because she has been a good girl and Helped others, all of that kind of thing. Anyway, I love I love The Little Princess, and I also find myself, even particularly now, thinking about A Wrinkle in Time mm. by Madeleine L'Engle, with another heroine who's sort of brainy, and she's not perfect the way Sarah Crewe is in The Little Princess. But I I even think about her fight to mm-hmm. rescue her father and, and brother from the clutches of this dreadful. Tyrannical authoritarian regime. Yeah. I think it speaks to us now, and I, I would love hearing those favorite books read to me by my daughters.
0: Did you read those books to them?
3: You know, I did not oh. um, because they're books that you read when you're a little older than being read aloud to. Yeah. But I did name my oldest daughter, Sarah, after Sarah Crew. Wow. Oh, uh huh. Um, and Meg. I guess that's me. I guess that's you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it would be a beautiful moment then for you and your daughters to share that because those books had been so important to you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'd like them to read them too. Yeah. (laughs) I think they may have.
0: Yeah. That is a wonderful response. Megan Marshall, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you, Jack. So there we go, having a daughter read to you, how poignant that is. And two great choices, a little princess and a wrinkle in time. My thanks to Megan Marshall for joining me for that. And of course, to Elizabeth Winkler, there in the fray. There are lots of articles about, about this book. Elizabeth is... In the midst of battle, her book is called Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Heresies is a great word, conjuring up shades of religion in this case, questioning dogma of the church of Shakespeare. Hey, I'm not a churchgoer. Admittedly, I do have a kind of religious devotion to literature, but I try to avoid dogma. I'm not out there calling for heretics to be burned. I would rather talk to them, and hear what they have to say, and test my own beliefs. That way it's much more fun, especially when they are as smart and as well-informed as Elizabeth. I'm more big tent than big taboo, or at least I'd like to think so. And I'm also big bye, or big goodbye, at least when it's time for that, which, sadly, it is right now. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.